Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so this week, our, our Torah portion is a more. We're almost finished with the book of Leviticus. Next week, we'll have two portions that'll wrap up the book of Leviticus, and then we'll go into, into Numbers. And within this portion, the scripture is still going through some of the requirements of the priest and how the priest will set him up, himself apart uh, to be holy unto the Lord above and beyond what his peers would be because he stands as a representative of God to the people. And within this, uh, there's instructions given about uh, mourning, like in the case of a death. There's also uh, commands regarding how offerings are to be made, what can be presented before the Lord, and also with sanctifying the name of God um, and giving honor to him. And then, of course, Leviticus 23 goes through uh, the appointed times of the Lord, which are uh, beautiful and and wonderful great topics things we're very passionate about here at Emmaus Road and then uh, it concludes speaking about the the menorah and the showbread and again speaks about the sanctification of the name of God so what I want to start out with is the passage right at the beginning of Amor in Leviticus 21 scripture says Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A priest is not to allow himself to become unclean for the dead among his people, except for his relatives that are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband. For her he may allow himself to become unclean, but he is not to defile himself, a husband among his people, and so profane himself. Priests are not to shave their heads, nor shave off the corners of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They are to be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings of the Lord made by fire, the bread of their God. Therefore they are to be holy. They are not to marry women who are defiled as prostitutes or profane. Neither shall they marry women divorced from their husbands, for a priest is holy to his God. Therefore you are to sanctify him, because he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. All right, so in this passage, again, it's starting out speaking about the holiness of the priest and how he's to conduct himself. Now, this week we're going to talk about um, perhaps some some scriptures that may be a little bit unclear as to how they're to be carried out, and we're going to find out a little bit more about how they were put into practice. So what was the, the form of halaha, which is the Hebrew word for to walk or the, your walk with, the God, with God, how you carry out the commandments. And the, the first thing that comes up here is in verses two to three of the passage where it says that a priest is not to allow himself to become unclean for the dead among his people except for his relatives that are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, 
or his virgin sister who's near to him who has had no husband. <clears throat> so what this passage is talking about is when a, when a relative dies, can the priest participate in attending to the body in the, bar- in the funeral or the procession, any aspect of it? And for an Israelite, they can, they can attend funerals of anyone because the ritual impurity that they take on, of course, can, can be, they can be cleansed of that. But for the priest, um, what they're set apart as saying, no, you, you will only become ritually impure for those relatives who are closest to you. <clears throat> but anyone else, the priest is prohibited from doing that because it's in association with death and they stand as ministers before the Lord who is life. And so they, they have a different standard that is set apart for them. Now, when we look at this list of who they can become, uh, who they can become ritually contaminated for, does everything look okay? You know, I mean, here we have the relatives who are closest to him, mother, father, son, daughter, brother, or virgin sister who has no husband. All that sounds pretty good, except there's someone potentially who's missing that's very important, such as his spouse, right? So in the list, we don't see the spouse, but it seems to to reason that the wife should be included. But so what we have is, according to Jewish tradition or halakha, the priest is to be uh, is to attend to his wife in her death and be part of the procession. But it's not explicitly stated here in the scripture. Instead, it's inferred. And it's inferred as being the relative that is nearest to him would be his wife. Okay? Now, that may sound a little strange, right? And Because it's not explicitly written, but it does stand to reason. And... So it's actually in the Talmud that that is <clears throat> that's what it means is the one nearest to them. Not only that, it's 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 also derived from the fact that his virgin sister who has no husband implies that a husband should be one who would stand stand there for the wife. So there's a couple of reasons that that it's uh, extrapolated from the scriptures that a priest would contaminate himself for his wife. The other thing is that it's not just a matter of he has the option of doing it. It's that he should do it. He's required to do it. And we say, well, why? You know, the scripture said that, you know, they're not to allow themselves to become unclean for the dead, except for their close relatives. But when it, when the scripture says that he shall contaminate himself for his sister who has no husband, then it's actually a command that he will attend to her and her death. And if he would for his sister, then how much more for his wife uh, when he will also for his sons and his parents? So it becomes a a positive command that a priest is to participate in the funeral and in honoring the dead for his closest relatives. Now, to me, when I was reading this, I, I just found it really interesting in how it's a great example of how we can take a look at the scriptures and say, well, what does it explicitly say? And then what is it implicitly saying as well to, to gain an understanding of how do we carry out the scriptures? How do we apply them 
because it's not always um, readily evident unless we gain other understanding of how it's been applied through the ages and how it's been interpreted. Now where that comes into play, we're going to, to get into to more description and into more discussion around that as we get into talking about the appointed times. But where, where this all comes from is back when Moses was was sitting as judge over the people every day, um, people would come to him all throughout the day. He would get up early and he'd stay up late rendering judgments for the people. And his father-in-law Jethro came to him and said, look, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. You need to appoint people who are uh, trustworthy, who can handle minor matters and make decisions for the people. And then anything that's too difficult for them, they'll bring to you and you can make the, the judgment on that. So in Exodus 18 verses 21 through 22, this is what he says explicitly. He says, but you should seek out capable men out of all the people, men who fear God, men of truth, who hate bribery, Appoint them to be rulers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people all the time. Then let every major case be brought to you, but every minor case they can judge for themselves. Make it easier for, for yourself as they bear the burden with you. And so from this came the creation of the Sanhedrin, where uh, there were different bodies who were put in place who would make judgments for the people. And it ended up being structured somewhat like well, actually, I, it's better to say our Supreme Court and our court system is structured according to this model. Um, actually, let me go back here. There's a couple other scriptures I wanted to share on that. In Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, the scripture says, Judges and officers you are to appoint within all your gates that the Lord your God is giving you. This is in all your cities. You shall appoint judges and officers according to your tribes, and they're to judge the people with righteous judgment. You are not to twist justice. You must not show partiality or take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. Justice, justice you must you pursue, so that you may live and possess the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And the scripture goes on to say, okay, these judges have been put in place right, to, to render rulings and justice and righteousness for the people. So now what will the people do? How do these operate? Uh, following in Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13, the instruction is given that suppose a matter arises that is too hard for you to judge over bloodshed or legal claims or assault or matters of controversy within your gates. This is including matters of halaha or how to walk out the commandments then you should go up to the place that the Lord your God chooses and come to the Levitical priest and the judge in charge at that time, and you will inquire, and they will tell you the sentence of judgment. You are to act according to the sentence they tell you from that place that the Lord chooses and take care to do all that they instruct you. You are to act according to the instruction they teach you and the judgment they tell you. You must not turn aside from the sentence they tell you to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands to serve there before the Lord your God or to the judge, that man must die. So you are to purge the evil from Israel, and then all the people will hear and be afraid and not act presumptuously again. All right, so there was a court system set in place in order to render rulings for the people. And it was set up where a small community or a village would have three 
rabbis who would serve as those who would judge for the community. And that was called a bait din. So cases would be brought to them. They would hear, they would make rulings according to uh, what their understanding of the scriptures were. And if a matter was brought to them that was too difficult for them, then they would actually take that to a higher court consisting of more uh, a larger number of people that were more of a regional court. And then if the, if the case were too difficult for that court, then they would take it to the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. So again, it, our court system is structured very much the same where we have appeals courts, federal courts, and then all the way up to the Supreme Court um, where appeals can be taken higher. But then again, once the Supreme Court rules, that's the rule of the land, right? Because they have the jurisdiction to make uh, to make rulings on behalf of the nation. It's the same way with the Sanhedrin. They had the authority to make rulings for the nations. They're not for the nations, excuse me, for the entire nation of Israel. Now, within this, um, what we see from the scripture is that the ruling that they make stands firm and that people are to follow it. Now, sometimes we can have take issue with this within uh, within the followers of Yeshua to say, well, what authority does that have over us today? How does this work? Is the uh, the authority of the Sanhedrin, you know, really binding? Now, I think it's important for us to take a look at what Yeshua and the apostles had to say on that, just as a foundation of saying, where do, where do we stand and, and how does it fit? In Matthew 23, 1 through 3, Yeshua spoke to the crowds and his disciples, and he said, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say, but they do not do. And so now the chair of Moses, the seat of Moses, is that that place of authority uh, that is given according to the Torah to make the, the rulings for the people such that they would act. And he says to do according to their words, but he makes the distinction of do not act in hypocrisy. You know, for when they say do, but then don't do it in righteousness, you're not to do it that way. Um, following on with these aspects of the rulings that were given, it's known as binding and loosing. If you, the, the act of binding is the, is the aspect of saying, okay, this is how a commandment is to be applied in a certain situation loosing is to say you know this this command does not apply in a in a certain setting and yeshua gave the authority uh to to peter for sure and the apostles of i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven so according and that's in matthew 16 19 according to yeshua he was giving them authority to make legal rulings for the body of believers and how they would walk out the faith and how the commandments would be applied. And within the whole, so with that established a, a council uh, that would rule and make legal, legal decisions. This council we see in Acts 15, when Paul brings the case before the council at Jerusalem to say, how should Gentile inclusion be handled? Right. And what had happened is within the community that Paul was in, there was a dispute as to how the Gentiles should be included. Should they become legally Jewish or should should they uh, remain legally Gentile? And then how does that look? How do you walk that out? Well, the conflict that they had, they were not able to resolve. 
And so since it was a matter that was too great for them, they took the matter to the council of Jerusalem where the, where that council had authority to make a ruling and send it out to all the, all the communities saying, this is our decision and this is how you will operate in this, in this instance. Um, so those are some good examples of, of how, how this operates and functions. Now, you know, then going and saying, okay, well, how did, how did Paul look at the authorities? In Romans 13, 1 through 2, he said, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, often this passage is, is uh, spoken of in relationship to the governments of the world and saying, look, all the governments of the world have been established by God. And in truth, uh, they all exist according to uh, the fact that he allows them to exist. But specifically in Romans 13, Paul's talking about the authorities, the governing authorities there in Israel who are making renderings according to the halakha for the Jewish people. And then also even referring to the council of Jerusalem and saying, how are we to, to walk out and, and carry out the commandments? So that just gives kind of a, a baseline foundation of, of the authority that was given to man to make rulings according to how how the commandments were to, to be carried out. And that's ultimately how these interpretations of, well, is the wife included in the in the people that the priest can become ritually impure for in her death? And the answer is, well, yes, he can, and it's according to the authority of the uh, Sanhedrin to be able to say, yes, this is the, this is established law for, for the nation. All right. So that's, that's some background. Uh, some of that may come back up as we go through and talk about the appointed times. And, and it, it will, um, because there are, believe it or not, there are disagreements about, uh, about the timing of the appointed times, about, about the timing of the Sabbath, even uh, there's, we can find disagreements on just about everything. <laughs> and we're we're really good at doing that, right? Um, but within that, there's a framework that we operate in, which is within the commandments of the Torah and trying our best to apply them in righteousness and in justice. Um, so now the appointed times again. Okay, so we're gonna break from that. We're gonna jump over to the appointed times. And go to Leviticus 23, or excuse, yes, Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the children, or to the sons of Israel, and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to, Lord, to the Lord and all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. And that verse right there is uh, something I mentioned on Thursday night during our Torah study. And I just threw a big old bomb into the conversation. It wasn't really a big old bomb into the conversation. It was actually a really good uh, way of opening up the discussion 
we had, uh, I, I think, a very good conversation, a productive conversation, and one where we were able to express various viewpoints and with respect for one another and honoring one another and really seeking to say, well, what is right before the Lord? How are we to carry out the appointed times according to the times that God has appointed for them? Um, now, before I go more into, into that, I'm going to take a break and, and talk about the appointed times and why is this so significant? Why is it so significant? Okay. And why does it create so many questions of how do we do it right? Well, it's because the appointed times were created by God from the very beginning in establishing how he was going to interact with mankind and meet with man in order to carry out his plan of restoration of all things. Okay. These are, these are central to God's plan of restoration. And on the fourth day of creation, God said that he, he set the sun and the moon in, in the sky for times and for seasons, those seasons being the appointed times. He set these in place even before man was created on the sixth day. So these were in the mind of God from the very beginning that he was going to act within these times in various ways to carry out his plan of redemption. And so we start, you know, in, in Leviticus 23, we saw that he says, these are my appointed times that I've set apart to meet with Israel. And so they, they belong to God. And then he's entrusted them to the Jewish people to, uh, to observe them, to mark the times in which they would be carried out and to perform the sacrifices, all the offerings on these days. And within all of those, be providing atonement for the people, for the nation, and even in, in uh, the time of Sukkot for, for all the nations. Okay. Now, each appointed time that is, is mentioned has a, a unique purpose and function within the plan of restoration. So, um, when the when the scriptures are going through in Leviticus twenty three, it's mentioning Shabbat and the the seventh day rest. It mentions Passover and then the feast of unleavened bread. And within that, it it speaks of the Omer offering during the the period of unleavened bread when the barley is brought before the brought before the Lord. It speaks about the counting of the Omer and the transition from. Passover to Shavuot, and then of course goes into the time of Shavuot, and then skipping forward to the fall festivals, it goes into Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah, into the Day of Atonement, into Sukkot, the the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the eighth day Shemini Atzeret. And within this passage, it doesn't go into all the details of how those are carried out. But the majority of the commandments that are shown in the scripture regarding the appointed times are in relation to the offerings that are made in the temple on those days. There are some instructions for how to carry out, um, how the people will carry out the, the appointed times as well, such as removing all the leaven from your homes during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of bringing the Passover sacrifice on the 14th day of Nisan, um, of... Uh, 
of course, counting the Omer and of dwelling in a sukkah, right? And if, and during uh, the Day of Atonement of fasting and afflicting oneself. Now, these times, God has moved in them multiple times throughout the, the ages in bringing about his plan of, of redemption and restoration. So, you know, over the past few months, we've talked about the exodus from Egypt where the children of Israel were brought out at the time of Passover and how then also at the time of Passover, Yeshua uh, was, was crucified and, and resurrected, right? He was the, uh, he was the perfect lamb of God. He was raised on the third day, which was the day of the barley offering. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. So we see God moving in redemption in the time of Passover. And then, then we see leading up to Shavuot, there's this time of spiritual preparation, a bride preparing herself for her groom. And then at the time of Shavuot, we see the giving of the Torah at Sinai and the, the covenant increase that takes place in that time when Israel becomes the bride of God. And then we see at the time of Yeshua, after his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, at Shavuot, and the new covenant is initiated at that time, being evidenced by the Holy Spirit. So we again have a covenantal increase, a, a time of intimacy with the Lord, between the bride and the Lord. And then within the within the fall festivals, okay, we see the with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, we see the sounding of trumpets. It's the time of the coronation of a king, right? Um, it's, a, it's a time of, of repentance and preparation for the coming day of judgment, which is on the day of atonement, uh, when atonement is made for the children of Israel. And during that time, there's the children of Israel, they afflict themselves to prepare for that judgment so that they will be sealed for a good year and find favor before the Lord, and the atonement is made for them. And then, going into Sukkot, you have the feast of in, uh, the feast of dwelling, right? The season of ingathering. It's a time of that represents God's dwelling with man and the ingathering of the nations. It's known as the season of our joy. It's the time that uh, is most likely the birth of Yeshua. Now. We've talked about that before, um, and it's it's one worth going into again. But uh, we're not going to do that today. But it's it's a time of joy where, uh, at least at Emmaus Road, we 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 celebrate the birth of Yeshua at that time um, because he tabernacled among men and and many other reasons. Uh, but then, so it's a celebration of the life that he brings, the new beginning that comes through him. It's also looking forward to the day of the, me the messianic era when after the judgment, there's going to be God dwelling with man and that the restoration will be complete, right? Our joy will be complete. So all these times are of great significance in God's working out restoration. And so to us, they're, they're treasured and we love to celebrate these times. And it's our desire to celebrate these according to uh, the ways of the Lord and how he wants us to, right? 
and and that in itself is really what brings up um much debate of of how do these things work now remember back in in verse 4 of chapter 23 it says you shall proclaim them in their appointed time okay now when i brought that up the other night i was i was not necessarily talking about uh differences in calendar observation but that that's certainly included because it's important in the proclaiming appointed times i was really more uh addressing an issue of how much of the christian church has gone away from well yeah the vast majority of the christian church has gone away from the lunar calendar and the uh, the uh, assigning the times according to the calendar as as was done in you know the, the second temple period and there was a, there was a there was a purposeful divorce of that um in the year like 325 around that ballpark in order to separate christian practice from jewish practice and and to me that's a real key aspect of something that has been done wrong that needs to be rectified and be brought back more into alignment that was a that was an extreme case of breaking away from the calendar and setting a, a new calendar not according to anything that really even resembled how it was done in the second temple but you know so now but backing even away from that there's disagreement on how the the new moons should be marked uh today all right and so i I didn't really want to talk about this today to tell you the truth <laughs> um but it hasn't been able to i haven't been able to shake it i prayed that the lord would uh give me a different topic to go through but i cannot get away from what i feel like he's showing me to share so this is what we're going to share today <laughs> and uh but within it i think it's a good topic to go through because it's going to be instructive and informative I hope, and just helpful in how we walk out what we're doing and, and helping us to clarify how should we be marking the times and what should our practice be. And I can't tell you that you're going to come away from this uh, discussion with a, a clear answer of like, oh, wow, it's ob absolutely this. I don't think you're going to come away with, hey, it's black and it's, or it's white. And I know that's troubling for some people because especially in a, in a Greek mindset, it's like it's either right or it's wrong, right? But it's we can't always get to something that clear or perfect. Um, instead, what we do is we take the evidence that's laid before us and we do our best to take that and apply it in a way that is going to be honoring to the Lord and to what he has given us in his Torah. The key thing is within all of this, with even within the, the those who disagree and have different reasons they have reasons for doing it and their desire the reason why the question comes up of how to do it is in a desire to seek the lord and to do his will right so one thing that i really appreciated in our discussion on thursday night about this was that there was respect and honor given to all parties within it you know um i felt felt like the discussion was done in a in a really in a really good way 
in a way that was inclusive and and encouraged participation. And that's where we where we really need to find ourselves in this is those who can walk with others who have a different view and still do it with the, with unity and love and respect and honor, right? When the scriptures in this in this Torah portion talk about the sanctification of the name of God, well, we don't sanctify the name of God when we fight and when we divide and when we don't honor one another, right? Yeshua said that, you know, we they will know his disciples by their love, right? And through our love, we sanctify the name of God because we show his unity and his kindness and his compassion, right? So there's a good way of going about the discussions and the disagreements, even the arguments of of how things should go. And there's a, a bad way of going about it. There's a way we can sanctify God's name, even if we don't all come to the same exact conclusion. So I encourage us today to... Um, to, to listen, to grow, to learn, and ultimately to decide that we are going to walk in unity, even if we don't see completely eye to eye on all the different components. And, and I do have to say, that's what I found at Emmaus Road. It's been very refreshing to see the kindness and the, um, the compassion and the respect shown to one another. So I just want to say great job on that and keep it up. All right. So let's, uh, let's go into a few questions, right? And, and one thing else I forgot to say is that these conflicts over the, uh, the, the marking of the new moon and setting the calendar, they're nothing new. I mean, they're, they're all over the place today, but they're nothing new. These have been going on for thousands of years. And again, it comes from people saying, well, how do we really carry out the word of God? So here we go. So the consecration or the sanctification of the new moon. What do I mean by the sanctification of the new moon? Sanctification of the new moon says that an authority has looked. They have they've verified that the new moon has been seen and they have then declared that the new moon or the new month has begun. Okay. And the new moon begins when we see the sliver of the moon right after sunset. So just as the sun is setting and going below the horizon, the first day that you see that tiny sliver of the moon is the first day of the month. Now, how do I know that, right? Does the Torah tell us that that is how we are to sanctify a new moon? And... The answer is no. The Torah actually gives no instruction at all about how to sanctify the new moon. It only says, like, this shall be the new moon for you. You shall sanctify the new moon. Um, and that it that the moon will mark out and set the days for the keeping of the appointed times. So... That's interesting, right? So how do we know then that it's the sliver of the moon showing up right after sunset that designates the new moon? Because after all, if you look today, <clears throat> astronomy will tell you the new moon is at the conjunction of the moon with the sun to where you see no moon at all, <clears throat> right? Now, that's not the way it was done in the ancient 
you know, Near East and, and in the time of the Second Temple, it was all done based on observation. It was common knowledge that the new moon began when the sliver of the moon became visible right after sunset. It's just the way it was done. The Torah didn't need to say that that's how you identify the new moon. It's just, it was what it was. Okay, so <clears throat> now there's a difficulty with this because where you are geographically matters on whether or not you're going to see the moon right after sunset. The atmospheric conditions affect whether you're going to see the moon right after sunset. So if it's cloudy and the new moon showed up, you wouldn't know to sanctify the moon, right? So then that, that presents an issue of how do you sanctify the moon? Who sanctifies the moon? Where do you sanctify the moon, right? Many questions come up. Now, the Torah doesn't tell us how to do any of that, but it was established through halakha, through the 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 law the uh the oral torah the the way that the commandments were to be carried out how when and where the the moon should be sanctified all right so it was chosen that it would be at the place where god set his name it was at jerusalem or near jerusalem where there was a siding and then witnesses would come to jerusalem to give testimony that they had seen the new moon and the Sanhedrin would sit in would would sit in and hear the testimony of the witnesses and determine if they were qualified witnesses or if they were not qualified witnesses or if, if their testimony was true or not so they would go through a whole list of questions and saying well when did you see the moon where did you see it how did it look how big was it you know how was it tilted all those different questions uh, to determine do we have a correct witness or not. And they had to have at least two witnesses who were qualified, who gave testimony. And then once they had that, they would then go ahead and say, okay, now the moon has been sanctified. The, the new month has begun. Now, why was it important for it to be at Jerusalem? And why did the Sanhedrin need to do it? They were making a consistent ruling for the entire nation's observation of it and in doing that it creates a unity throughout the whole nation of being aligned in their calendar also it was done there at the temple with the sanhedrin because so many of the commandments which then stem from the sanctification of the moon are dependent on the sanctification of the moon right so when you bring extra offerings for the day of the new moon when you uh, when you have Passover, when should the, the Pesach offering be brought? When should all the offering offerings of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or even Sukkot be offered? And all those offerings were made on behalf of the nation. So there needed to be a consistency among the nation of, of how they did it. So it wasn't just, oh, well, in the, in the Galilee, the moon was seen. And so just up in Galilee, they've got the new moon, but down in, in Judah, they're, they're waiting for their own new moon to come. Instead, the whole nation could be on the same page. And so that was an important aspect. So the Sanhedrin was really the only body who had the authority for sanctifying the new moon. All right. 
Now, even within this, there were some complications. As I mentioned, atmospheric conditions might make it such that you can't see the new moon. Okay, so let's say that after 29 days, the new moon would be visible, but cloud cover was all over to where no one was able to see the sliver of the moon and come give testimony. Well, in that case, the Sanhedrin would rule that the next day was the new moon. Okay, even though it was off by one day from the actual potential observation that didn't matter. What mattered was the sanctification of the moon. When the Sanhedrin said, this is the date, and then that was the date that the whole nation observed and kept, and that established any special uh, celebration that would have been taken, taken place in that month. And what gave it credence was that the authority to sanctify the new moon had sanctified it. Okay, so that made it acceptable before the Lord because the Lord had given authority to the Sanhedrin to make the rulings for the nation, and they were doing it in best accordance with what their ability was to do it at the time. Okay, hope that makes sense. And in making that statement, we need to understand that even then, when the temple stood, when the Sanhedrin set, when they used observation and witnesses, even then, the declaration of the new moon was not always perfect. It was flawed. It could be off a day. That didn't nullify its validity before the Lord. Okay? Now, after the destruction of the temple, okay, after the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin continued to make the proclamation of the new moon. And they continued to do that all the way up until 359 AD. Okay, so it was almost 300 years after the destruction of the temple. They're still making the proclamation of the new moon according to observation. But at that time, there was great persecution from Rome. And throughout history, any of the conquering uh, nations that wanted to, do, wanted to do away with the Jewish people would outlaw the keeping of Shabbat, they would they would outlaw the observation of the moon, uh, of the reading of Torah. They would they would persecute the Jewish people and seek to prevent them from carrying out the commandments of God. Well, at this time in 359, that's what was taking place: is there was persecution against the Jews by the Romans to keep them from from keeping the months, and the the Sanhedrin. The leaders of the, of the leaders were concerned that they would no longer be able to proclaim the month for the nation. And if the Sanhedrin is the only group, the only body that has authority to proclaim the month, then how will the, the proclamation of the month be carried on? Who will do it? How will they do it? How will the Jewish people continue to keep the appointed times of the Lord at their appointed times if the times have not been sanctified or appointed right and so what they did is Hillel II he created a calendar that was a fixed calendar according to astronomical calculations of when the moon should be sanctified for each month and how all of the appointed times should be set 
And he's put that in place to stand until an authority came that could go back to the observation of the moon, going with witnesses to say, okay, we're going back to the observation method and moving away from the fixed time. Now, you know, some some see that as being a bad thing because it's not always right, right? Sometimes the, cal- the, the new moon isn't seen on the day when the fixed calendar says that it should be, okay? Sometimes Passover, uh, according to the fixed calendar, doesn't fall when the barley has been become ripe, right? And, and the barley being ripe is important for the observation of Passover because on that third day, on the day after the Sabbath, during the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, that's the day that the priest is to wave the first fruits of the harvest before the Lord in the temple. Well, if the barley's not ripe, he can't wave the first fruits of the barley, right? So if the fixed calendar isn't lined up with that, then, you know, the, if the temple were standing, the priest couldn't do what he was supposed to do. So it, it creates really a, a conundrum, right, of saying uh, what should be done. I mean, is it according to the fixed calendar or should there be observations of the moon and of the barley, you know, that, that determine this? And, you know, so was it right to go to a fixed calendar? Well, I mean, you could argue that it wasn't. Um, perhaps they, the Sanhedrin could have gone through and continued to uh, go based on observation, but they really did it from an aspect of preservation and for continuity within the body to create unity for the years to come such that the Jewish people could all be unified in their observation of these times. Because these times are for the nation of Israel that God plans to meet with them. He wants them to meet according to the, the time appointed for them, according to the new moons, and he gave the authority to the Sanhedrin to establish it. So when we look at it with that kind of a, a basic look, then we can see the, the validity of a fixed calendar being put in place by an authority because the authority established it. In effect, they have sanctified each of these moons and these appointed times. But, okay, but again, with, with this, now Israel is back in the land, right? Israel is back in the land. They can observe the new crescent moon, right? When it, when it comes, they can also be looking at the barley and saying, is it ripe? Is it ready? And with those two things, you should be able to more accurately say, when is the first of the month of Nisan, which then sets the calendar for all that year's religious celebrations, all of the appointed times for that year. And, Within that, um, we we do have to ask a question. If that's available, should that be done? Right, and that's really where the questions become, or that's really where the questions come from, with regard to how do we carry out the commandments of the Lord most most correctly in keeping His appointed times, because His appointed times are so critical. 
So if we have a better way, should we be doing the better way? Right. And <clears throat> I'm going to take a second here to just look at my notes to make sure I'm not missing something critical on that. Um, okay. And if we don't take advantage of these new abilities that are available to us today to sanctify the, the moon according to the, the siding of the moon and the barley harvest, then are we setting aside the commandment of God in favor of a tradition of man, right? Which would we could call the tradition of man the fixed calendar set up by Hillel II. So there's, there's likely more questions than that. And Diego, what question do you have? Oh, just a comment. Uh, at this point, you're addressing, from my understanding, uh, you're addressing the authority given to the Sanhedrin as far as fixing the calendar. Uh, I think it's. I think we should make a distinction between the authority given to the Sanhedrin, to the judges, and the authority of the rabbis. At this point, I don't think you're addressing the authority of the rabbis because that often is put together in the same group. Um, and, and we have to understand that the not even the rabbis can change this fixed calendar. They can only follow it. So this is not a rabbinic invention or it's not a, a traditional invention. It's actually a legal matter that was established within the temple service, within God's uh, uh, point of view. So when we talk about this, this is, well, why do we have to follow the rabbis? It's like, we're not following the rabbis when we're doing this, following this calendar. We're not following the rabbis. That came after. Uh, we're following, actually, the judges of Israel who made this decision. So at this point, we are not even addressing what authority does the rabbis have in all this matter. So, Yes, Diego, that, that's an excellent point that needs to be made because... That's that's exactly where the this whole thing of calling the fixed calendar a tradition of men is actually a it's a misnomer. It's it's a wrong classification of this. So because it's actually, as you said, it's a legal ruling in accordance with the command within the commandments of God, as we read earlier in Deuteronomy that says that the judges will make a ruling any for the nation and that you're to follow that, that was authority specifically given. Now, if the Torah had said, you will only sanctify the new moon by observation of the sliver from Jerusalem, attested by two or more witnesses, you know, if the Torah had given all of that written out, then it would have been a violation of the commandments of God to go to a fixed calendar. Okay, but the Torah didn't give explicit instruction on how it should be done instead the, the torah gave the authority to the sent to the sanhedrin to the leadership of the nation of israel to make the process by which it would be done right and so <clears throat> hillel the second had legal authority according to the torah to set aside this fixed calendar to be the sanctification of the moons and of the appointed times until the time would arise when the authority would be reestablished that could come through and change the legal ruling given by the prior ruling body. 
It's just like our Supreme Court. When they put a rule in a, a law in place, that law stands until a Supreme Court in the future could make a rule that could change or make make a ruling that would change the prior one because precedent can be overturned, right? Um, but the criteria for overturning a precedent is higher than just the first uh, statement of a of a of a ruling, if that makes sense. So even within the legal laws of the Sanhedrin, is the practice was that a future Sanhedrin who wants to overturn a prior Sanhedrin's ruling had to be either greater in number or greater in eminence, like in in greatness, to be able to overturn the the prior Sanhedrin's rulings. So there will be a time that an authority is put in place that will move the uh, accounting of the time and the setting of times to to the observation of the moon and the testimony of witnesses. Now, will that be uh, when Yeshua is here or will it be uh, before that? I don't know, but there is a day coming when the, the moons will be proclaimed according to observation again um, and that this the current legal ruling stands until that time. But again, I think that's a real key that Diego brought up is that this is not following a tradition of the rabbis or what they would do there. This was a, actually a legal ruling according to Torah. So we're not actually, when we follow the fixed calendar, we're not setting aside the commandments of God in favor of the traditions of men. We're actually walking according to the commandments of God as, as the Torah presented them. Now, we acknowledge that within that fixed calendar, there are limitations and there are times when it's like that doesn't line up exactly where it should. And unfortunately, that's just the time that we're in, in this time when the temple isn't standing. I mean, we can look at it and say none of the appointed times are being carried out the way they're supposed to be carried out because none of the offerings can be made before the Lord. All those offerings on behalf of the nation can't be done. So... um. So though it's not perfect, it is functional. And and so what we're doing in, in like Emmaus Road, our practice is to follow that fixed calendar. And it's our great desire to be honoring the Lord and keeping his commandments as he's given them. And especially with regard, I mean, not to me especially, but keeping the commandments, of course, we want to do that. And, and keeping them within the, in, within the appointed times is no less significant to us. So, um, <clears throat> so basically with, within that, we, we'd see some additional value to, I mean, keeping the commandments is enough, right? There's still the questions that have to be answered, right? To where people can become comfortable with, okay, is this right? Is it right before the Lord? And ultimately you have to make that decision on your own, right? Um, seeking wise counsel, studying the scriptures, seeking to understand not just what's explicitly like written in the text, right? Because that doesn't always have the answer, but understanding in greater depth what has been done historically. How was it practiced? What did Yeshua do when he was here? What did the apostles do? And so within doing this, with keeping the fixed calendar, additional benefits are that it keeps us aligned with the Jewish people and with the nation of Israel. And it creates unity within the broader body. 
that we can all be celebrating together as one. Um, and so I, I really, I think, and along with being aligned with Torah, that's, that's the foundation for why our practice is what it is. But we also acknowledge that there are legitimate objections and great matters to discuss amongst one another. And so when we disagree, that's okay. Uh, it's a great chance for us to to strengthen our knowledge, to to dive into the word, to understand more of what's been given to us and how we sanctify the name of the Lord, right? And so then again, the method in which we do that is also critical and how we do it in the spirit of love and honor and respect for one another. So I encourage you to continue asking the questions, continue to wrestle with the scripture, to, to say, why do we do what we do? And don't be afraid to ask the question, right? Because if you have the question, likely someone else does too, you know? Um, so it's uh, very much encouraged. I think that all of us grow the more we discuss these things. Okay. All right. Now, wow, the time is, is flying. <laughs> Either that or I just talk a lot. I don't know, one of the two. But um, I was going to, to share... A, Briefly, you know, with the aspect of these debates over time, it's, it's nothing new. Uh, back in the days with, with the sanctification of the moon, remember I, I said that they had to qualify the witnesses and make sure they were valid witnesses because there were times that people would come and bring false testimony to try to change the day on which the moon was sanctified to match up according with what their interpretation was of how uh, different festivals should be should be carried out specifically about the waving of the barley uh, during the time of, of Passover. So the scripture is, uh, and I've got this here, I'm going to jump to it real quick. In Leviticus 23, 9 through 11, speaking of this offering of the of the omer it says then the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the sons of israel and say to them when you enter the land which i'm going to give to you and to reap its harvest then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest he shall wave the sheaf before the lord for you to be accepted on the day after the sabbath the priest shall wave it now that where it says on the day after the sabbath the priest shall wave it that created all kinds of confusion as well because the sadducees looked at it and said, well, that means the weekly Sabbath. The Pharisees said, no, that means the Sabbath of the first day of the, uh, of, of the week of unleavened bread, because that first day is a rest day. It is a Sabbath of the Lord. So there was a, a difference there. And so it's a documented within the Talmud that there were times that people would bring false testimony to try to move the date of when the barley would be offered in the temple. And it's uh, First Fruits of Zion does a really good uh, breakdown of the uh, of Res Resurrection Week, right? Where they go through the days leading up to Yeshua's crucifixion. And it goes through and it, it notes how in the book of John, it looks like Yeshua had his, was, uh, that his Seder was, on a Thursday night, but in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it looks like it could have been on a Friday night. It, the the stories are, or it, it indicates that the day that Yeshua held his Seder, his last Seder, may have been different than the actual day 
that the nation of Israel was keeping their Seder. And it's possible that that was also due to a difference in the sighting of the moon and the Sadducees modifying the witnesses to move it to where the barley could be offered on a Sunday. Now, it's a speculation based on some historical information and a a synchronization of the Gospels to try to explain how they all laid out. But it's really interesting in the aspect that um, even if Yeshua's Seder was on a day according to the true sighting of the moon, nothing was mentioned about a rejection of uh, the other like of of the one that was established according to the Sanhedrin at the time. So we could go into more detail on that, but one of the things is, even if it were off, the time that Yeshua gave up his life was according to the calendar that was set by the nation. The time that he was risen from the grave as the first fruits offering was according to the time set according to the practice of the nation. So God, in that, was operating according to what had been established by the ruling body to move in his acts of restoration. So interesting things that this has been something that's gone throughout the time. And within it, again, I, I, I see the key for us is saying, okay, we understand why we do what we do, but then also we give grace to others who have various opinions, because this is not what we've just discussed today is not the full extent of it. It doesn't cover many other uh, complicated aspects of the Torah where we have to discern what is it that we're to do and how do we walk. And in all those things, the way we, the way we do and, you know, the way we move forward is through discussion and participation and growing with one another and doing that in love, being unified despite having differences at times. And when we have differences, still respecting the other and giving honor to the other, because I really believe that within that, there is the sanctification of the name of the Lord. Because if people were to look at, at, our, at our community, right, and say, wow, not only do you all do different things, but you dislike each other for it and and hate one another treat each other poorly well that's the ultimate profaning of the name of god because instead we should be expressing our our love for one another and and by that be reflecting the nature of god as demonstrated to us through the person of yeshua and through through really what the spirit of the commandments are which is to love god and to love our neighbor and to to give honor to one another so again I really believe we do that well. I've seen seen it over and over again. So I want to encourage you to continue doing that and and know that that's what really matters. Um, so in it, you know, we get to walk together. We get to proclaim the Lord's appointed times. We get to sanctify his name. And in this time of the counting of the Omer, here we are, we're on day 30. Uh, we are closing in on the time of Shavuot preparing our hearts for the Lord and seeking to know him better. Um, So may we all be blessed as we continue in the counting. And I look forward to the time we can get together for Shavuot and we can celebrate uh, the giving of the Torah and the giving of the spirit and look forward again to the coming redemption and the greater realization of the complete new covenant through Yeshua. So, amen.
Does anybody else have anything that you wanted to share? I think it's interesting that I feel like I'm putting a thousand piece puzzle together. <laughs> Y'all have been studying this and doing this for a long time. And I've just kind of started to, you know, tap into the shallow waters here, but so much to learn. But I thought it was interesting about the harvest and the new moon and the moons that the harvest means that everything is ready for it's been fulfilled. The, the grain is fully developed. It's matured. It's ready to be processed and used for the sacrifice for whatever God's calling is to put that in place. And I thought that was interesting. So this may be a kind of a crazy question. So does the moon dictate to the harvest or does the harvest a sign of the moon, even when it's a cloudy day? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the harvest matters for the sanctification of the month of Nisan, but that's the only month that actually, uh, affects. So within the, within the Jewish calendar, within the lunar calendar, you have 12 months of, 29 and a half days. Okay. So that's the, the moon cycles, 29 and a half days, almost it's pretty close. And so you end up with a year of 354 days, which is 11 shy of the solar uh, calendar. And so if you kind of do the math on that, if you take your 11 days times three, you're at 33, which is a little longer than a month. So every third year, roughly, there's an extra month added into the calendar. Now it's not always every third year. Sometimes it's every two years in order to uh, keep things in alignment. But what would happen back in the days of the observation is when the, uh, you'd, you'd be coming into the 12th month and you'd be getting ready to move into the first month, into the month of Nissan. And they would go out into the field near Jerusalem, people who had authority to look at the grain and they would, they would go through a whole ceremony in determining is the grain ripe or not? And should we be, um, should we be, uh, setting it aside? But if the, if the barley harvest was ripe, then they would say, okay, we can go ahead and sanctify the new moon for, for the new religious year. But if it wasn't ripe, then they would add a leap month into the year. So they would add an extra month being the 13 month, which would then delay the marking of the first month. So does that make sense? So that, that's really where the, the ripeness of the barley harvest came into place was determining, do we need to add an extra month? Do we need to wait to sanctify the new moon of Nissan or not? Um, but then, then once they had determined the barley's ripe, we can move forward, then they would sanctify the moon according to the siding of the moon. Okay. And and Irene, I, I appreciate you even mentioning that this is a lot to grasp. There is so much uh, information. There's so much detail within the appointed times, within the calendar, within understanding the Sanhedrin, understanding what is rabbinic tradition, you know, all these different things, uh, it can be very complicated. It, it, it's a, it's real, we're really on a lifetime journey of learning. And so there may be things that, that any of us here on any 
given Saturday or during our tour study or any of our other meetings that may be foreign to us. And, and that's okay. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't be intimidated or back off by it. Just keep coming and the Lord will, the Lord will give you what you need. Right. And, uh, and we just all continue to grow together. So thank you for asking the question. Sure. Just one more. It makes me almost want to cry because, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time and, um, and I've had, I've had, I've had, um, several uh, times that I've been to Messianic um, services in San Antonio and, and here in Houston when we first moved here. But it seems like it seems like now I can see how the Old Testament and New Testament, they really never been separated only just because of time or the nonprofits not speaking out. And it's to me, it's like the church has to see. And I mean, I'm the church has to see that it's one body. It's like the ocean. Who can divide the ocean and say this part of the ocean is not needed or this part is needed? And it's like it kind of burdens my spirit for the body of Christ that we're we're not together. And it's just because um, that's where my heart is for the world. And and it really burdens my heart because that's where God has brought us to. And, you know, he's showing me this this big separation. It's it's impossible. It has to be together it has to be brought together for all of us to to understand honor and and bring glory to god sorry guys i just had to share that because this is how it's been impacting me yeah no irene that was beautiful and thank you for sharing that because you know the the fact that you're so moved by that in your spirit it's it's out of love right there was no condemnation in your heart right there it was saying look i realize that there is a divide there's a split and I so long for it to be together because there will be healing and restoration within that. And that's part of a, a key component of what we're about here at Emmaus Road Fellowship, right, is saying, look, we understand that there are gaps between the Christian, uh, the Christians and the Jews, and it's our desire for them to be together. It's our desire for the, the Christian to come to know the Jewishness of Yeshua and the relevance of the Torah and the connection between the old and the new, and that it's one continuous story and not not two different ones. And then we also long for the Jewish people to uh, continue to uphold the Torah, to continue to walk according to the commandments, but also to know Yeshua as their Messiah and to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Not just as a so that uh, we can be proven right or whatever, but so that the whole all the nations of the world can be made whole under the reign of the righteous King Yeshua, you know? And, and so it's our heart's desire. It's our, it's our loving desire to see that revelation come because both sides need a veil lifted so that, you know, those two separated oceans can be come back to being one. I really hope we can move uh, a little, we can move further on the conversation because a lot of the uh, opposition uh, comes from knowing Paul, Paul's letters in regard to the topic. So these topics are often looked at from, from the filter of Paul's letter. When he said things about, you know, the moons and the calendars and the days, and, you know, and, and, and it seems and it's perceived in a negative perspective. So that draws the conclusion on the matter, you know. Forget it. it they were just shadows of things. And it ends, the conversation always ends there. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that we're that we're addressing this from the beginning to the end, and not from the end to the beginning, uh, as far as from a scriptural perspective. So I really hope, and it is my personal request, that if we can do this, like continue to move more, further more towards what Yeshua said, what it said, what Paul says, and, and also looked at the uh, the appointed times from the prophetic point of view, because everything that Yeshua did was exactly on the times that the Torah tells us things will to happen. Um, you know, Yeshua said to the Pharisees, he says, you, you search your scripture because you think you'll find, because you find life in it, but the scripture speaks of me. But where does it say that? Nobody says that in the Torah. Nobody says anything about Yeshua or, or the Messiah. But when we look at the calendar, when we look at the uh, the, the, the holidays and the, the feasts and the festivals, then we can see the light of Yeshua through all those times. So it will be very, very neat if we can dive into each one of them and how they're applicable today to us and, and how they reveal the Lord through them. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely, Diego. And, and, uh, and with that, you mean on uh, just as we continue to go on, in the, the coming weeks or months and things like that, that we just continue to to move and discussing that to discussing that to a deep le- deeper level. Am I hearing correctly? That's my request. Whatever the Lord wants to do, that's just something I, I would like to see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. Yeah, you know, um, one thing to, to to share on that too is that we do have uh, some teachings, historical teachings on those on our website. Not that we won't do them again, because I'm sure we will do them again. And, you know, Diego, as you said, we're going to go as, as the Lord leads and, and how he uh, directs us in, in sharing these things. But in the meantime, if, uh, if you're interested in, in finding out more information on some of those aspects, uh, we on our website, we have a, a lot of our historical uh, messages, including something that we call like our distinctive series, which hit on several things often speaking about the appointed times and, and what the Lord was doing through those and what he will be doing through those. But again, these are such key, um, key parts of our walk and of God's plan that it warrants going back to them and understanding them. And really the whole aspect of starting from the beginning with laying the foundation for the basis of why we do what we do and what our beliefs are is absolutely critical because when Yeshua came, he didn't come into a vacuum. He came into a a history and a foundation that had been established. And then he operated within that. When the apostles, including Paul started to write, they didn't just start writing out of a vacuum. Uh, It was all based on this foundation that was built up. And so everything that we read about Yeshua and about, uh, Paul and the other apostles who wrote all their epistles, we have to read them through the lens of Torah and what the practices of the nation were at the time in order to get a, a proper understanding. Otherwise, we create our own uh, theologies. You can't do that, right? You, you have to start with the foundation of what does it really mean, and then you go and you gain true understanding and application. So, yeah, it's critical that we start with the foundation of what what did the scriptures say from the beginning and how does that then apply today? I wanted to say that I really appreciate also Irene's 
your comment um, because coming in, it does seem like, whoa, this, this is a lot. Like I'm not, I'm not used to this. I'm, this is completely new to me. There's so many different avenues that I can go down to learn. And, you know, I want to encourage you too, because the way that I see Acts 15 is that we're not alone coming into this. And, and that's exactly how the Jerusalem council said it when they're coming in, they're like, we're not going to put any other burdens on these, but to these Gentiles, but to start with this. And then as you come more and more to synagogue, you're going to learn more and more as you go and grow in that. Um, so we all start so somewhere. And so I wanted to encourage you in that as well, that we're not alone. You are not alone. Also, even if we've been in here for a while, that doesn't mean we have it all figured out or we know it all because I learned from your question and Chris's answer. So don't ever hold back questions because that's how we all learn and grow together. Man, yeah, thanks guys for, for sharing that. It, it's so key that we... Rachel, you said that we all need to recognize that we're on a path. You know, we're, we're, we're not at the finish line. We're not at complete knowledge. I learn from, from you guys and I hope y'all learn from me and I, you know, we all learn together. Right. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I'll go back. I've said it a couple of weeks ago. Thea always talks about how we create a beautiful symphony when we're together and when we share together. And it's true because everybody's bringing their part and it does create something beautiful and it, and it increases the amount of growth, growth that we have together. Can I give credit a little bit? Um, you know, if it wasn't for Philip and Leslie and their, their change, there's just been a lot of good changes in their life that have encouraged me to, and then, introducing me to y'all and, and, you know, coming when we were together at the house and it's just, you know, and I'm a very curious person. So I already have like three books I'm reading that y'all are using and I'm going to order the tree of life Bible. I'm going to do all this stuff, you know, and, and it's not for religion or to be religious. It's to be relational. I I'm starving. I'm starving for a better relationship through the Holy Spirit, I want him to just, you know, uh, explode my mind, you know, just, just show me what, and, you know, I, I've been, you know, praying in the spirit and doing all this. And, and, you know, sometimes I wonder, have I been doing this for myself or been doing it for the Lord? So um, watching Philip and Leslie grow and how the children have uh, acclimated to, the services. It's just been a, a, a very positive influence in my life. So I, I need to give them credit, my, my kiddos. Oh, praise God. Amen. Thank you for that too, Irene. It's just so encouraging to hear, right? That um, the Lord is on the move, right? And he's, it, he, it is his desire to be relational with us, right? This isn't just an aspect of go and, and check the box and do our thing, but it's, it's a, diving into the Lord and him drawing near to us. Amen. Anybody else? Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you too. Um, but, you know, really, even when you think of the whole point of the cycles of the moon and everything else, it's, 
it is our picture of our relationship with the Lord, how we have this cycle of repentance and, you know, that sliver of light, you know, reflecting more and more of his image of the sun's light. So the whole point of the moon, of the feast and everything is about our relationship, is is about, you know, these paths of righteousness that we just go and go and go again. And there's a pattern, but we're forever repenting. We're forever drawing close. We're forever um, drawing into new season and, and feeling like we've arrived only to start again. And um, anyhow, I just think it's such a beautiful thing. And, and it's all about our relationship with Yeshua, with Yahweh. And because otherwise Yeshua could have just said, okay, here are the rules. This is what we do with the moon. And he could have spelled it all out. And, and if anyone could have, it should have been him. And yet, you know, look at how many times John 5 is a perfect example of, and I know these are feasts of the Lord, but it'll say, you know, he went up for the feast of the Jews or whatever. And, and so he fulfilled and he did all these things, but yet God shows his character in long suffering and how he wants us to work with him and know him better. Just what you say, you know, that it's really about wanting this relationship with the people he's created. So I don't know. I just think our, our discussion even is the whole point of it all, you know? So uh, mm-hmm. anyhow, God is just so awesome. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Jan. Along with what, along with what, what Irene said, Irene said you, um, Leslie and Philip, it's this idea. I had to repent because and this is just recent when I was reading this book, The Tent of David, it's talking about how we've got to have um, that connection. Once we come to this realization, okay, the Torah is not done away with, we tend to leave the church and be like, oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But we've got to have that connection with people. We've got to have that connection and that love for people because had had Leslie and Philip just said, oh, well, too bad. You don't know what you're talking about. You're still in the church. Then here you wouldn't have been here on zoom having this revelation right now so it's this importance of both aspects of um have a part we have a part in this prophecy and fulfillment of restoration the jewish people and the gentiles even even you know the christians so we can't sit here and always we have to give honor to them as well if that makes sense that's what yeshua wants us to do is is we learn we come to this point we came to the faith as christians right and so how much honor that we, we've got to give to them. And we can't just now dishonor them by saying, well, they didn't know what they're talking about. Well, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. There would be no Messianic Gentile, you know? And so um, so that was something I had to repent of and be like, man, you know, I can't have this negative view of them. I have to, you know, keep those relationships with people that you still going to church, encourage them, love on them. Because when it comes time to they go, hey, why are you celebrating Sukkot? And they come back to you. It's that relationship that you have with them that they go, you know, it's like, like Chris said, they'll know you by your love, you know? And so, uh, so yeah, that's encouraging to hear you say that too, you know, because kind of like with my dad and 
the years go on and, you know, sometimes, you know, with, um, when you've been in the faith for a long time, it's kind of hard to see things that are new. Like you said, this is all new. And even now, like I, I've had to repent too. It's like, you know, we serve and we serve and we serve, or I've served and served and served, but I've really appreciated this Zoom opportunity and this whole light of COVID and everything we've had to stop and study and look and search and listen to teachings and this. And I'm like, man, you know, I've gotten so in a box with just one way and not doing the other part of it, you know, like it's all a balance. So anyways, I just wanted to touch on that too, because like I had to repent and, and there's fulfillment and there's restoration happening and it's encouraging and exciting. You know, we can't just look at this and go, Oh, they've got it wrong or this and that. We've got to encourage one another and love on one another so that we can all come together in restoration. So it's exciting times. And, and, you know, we have to look different from what the world, if the world isn't fear and afraid, We've got to be the light. We can't be afraid as well. We've always got to look different from what the world is doing, if that makes sense, so that they can see us and they can say, I'm going with them because you know what? I'm not feeling really good about what the news and the media are saying. You know, I'd rather attach myself to something that's light and that's good. And that's what we always have to like, you know, portray. And so anyways, so thanks for sharing that because the point is not to be at the highest level or the lowest level, the point is to reach some level, you know, and to start moving forward. So it's really, really cool to see you have that revelation and like you said, your heart, you know, for it. And so just encourage you to keep going, you know? Amen. That's excellent, Jamie. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've been able to gather in your name to meet with you at this Time that you've appointed and set apart this day that you've called holy lord we agree with you that your day is holy and i uh, thank you for just the word shared today thank you for stirring in our hearts i pray that you continue to draw us closer to you give us revelation of your word of your truth lord help us to make the connections um, such that we see more clearly that which you've revealed through your torah through yeshua and through the, all the apostolic writings, Lord, um, I ask that you would move within us, draw us closer to you as we approach this time of Shavuot. And may we give glory to you and sanctify your name in, in the midst of our community and beyond. We ask this all in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.